0: The opportunity and the enterprise that we have this evening to assemble on an occasion like this one is certainly one that's a privilege and a grand one at that, as God has blessed us so wonderfully with a day like this one. The opportunity to appreciate His handiwork in creation, not only physically, but also spiritually. As we gathered for worship this morning, those that had the opportunity and those that were able to do so, and now for a second time this day, indeed, may we be edified, encouraged, and moved forward in our opportunity to live for the God of heaven. This evening we come to the 10th installment in our series of lessons dealing with the translations of the Holy Scriptures. And in a way, this one is relatively nearing our conclusion of the series actually. I perhaps anticipate one or at most two more. But at any rate, as we come to look at tonight's lesson, We actually will begin by building on the very end of the lesson last Sunday afternoon, and as we do that, perhaps that'll be the thing that I'll use to start the lesson tonight. That is a very brief reminder of the one thing we need to recall from that particular lesson. In fact, to make a quick brief overview of some of those matters we have learned, we have seen, of course, the importance and the significance that attaches to the translations of the Scriptures. All the while we looked at the character of the fact that those languages are such that you and I are not able to read in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. And so how beneficial and in fact how tremendously important it is for us to have an English translation. One that you and I can open, read from, appreciate and ascertain that which is the teaching and the doctrine of God. We have looked at a number of ideas about various translations, giving some consideration to them in one way or another. We did notice that a few of them are certainly not to be recommended. One's along the line of that cotton patch translation. Also, we perhaps drew some questions about a number of others. It might be in light of some of them, though, that we did highlight that it is possible to buy a Bible or purchase one that really will teach what one wants it to teach which is a really sad thing, isn't it? We should have a desire for the hearing of what God has taught and not to find some Bible that teaches a doctrine that might be a favorite of you or of me. It is in light of all of that, though, that we come near the bottom of that particular slide and notice that last week we did give some attention to the history of the English Bible as you and I now have it. We noticed particularly the translations of Wycliffe and some others, And as we looked at them, we did notice in 1611, the King James Translation was published and it, in about 20 years' time, became the favorite, the most popular of the English translations. It was in 1881, however, that a revision of that translation was undertaken. And that's where we need to pick up the lesson this evening. We do remember that under the tutelage, or under the efforts, I suppose, as that translation committee was led by them that two gentlemen named Westcott and Hort undertook a revision of that King James translation. It had stood the test of time from 1611 by and large until about 1881, and they at that point began to perceive that it might be a good idea to try to make a revision of it. Other manuscripts since the 1611 had become available... Other discoveries had been made, and furthermore, there had been changes in the English language, and thus certain words and their meanings had changed in that period of over 250 years. And thus, they thought it might be wise to undertake yet another translation, a revision of that King James one. We did notice that they did, in fact, complete that work. It was published again in 1881 in the New Testament, the Old Testament in 1885. We did notice, though, that inasmuch as those documents, translations were set forth, they did not overwhelm the King James. It still seemed to have a place in the heart and the mind of so very many, and this newer translation never really did replace that at all. That brings us to this comment about some Americans that actually served on those translation committees of 1881 they were a bit unhappy with some of the British renderings for Westcott and Hort both labored from the country of England and so did many of the other translators actually. The Americans on the committee were not terribly excited about some of the renderings and thus they made the decision that when the proper amount of time had elapsed and it was set to be 20 years, that they would put out an American rendition of that same revision of 1881 This one came out thus in 1901. It was called the American Standard Version of the Bible, and these are some of the comments perhaps worthy to be noted with respect to it. At the time it came forth, it was widely regarded as the most literal and accurate English translation of the Scriptures ever to have been made. And in fact, to this day, that particular slogan or that particular description as far as I'm aware, has not yet been set aside. Still, I think most would regard it in terms of literal word-for-word accuracy as the finest English translation of the Bible ever made. Thus, as one gives thought to it, it gained a rather wide popularity at the outset. However, it began to wane somewhat as the years went by with access to so many other translations. A few comments might be in order. First, Thomas Nelson, the publishing company now, of course, widely known in Nashville, held the initial publication rights, but they sold those rights to the Star Bible Publication Company. And in fact, that to my knowledge, that's the only company now publishing the ASV. And sad to say, it is very difficult now to find it in printed form. One can find it if one looks hard enough, but it isn't nearly as easy to find as some other translations. And that quite frankly, it seems to me is a bit sad. At any rate, you'll notice some things about it. It is possible to find it on some computer software forms. So if you have a computer, and typically for a very, very small price, you can actually find the entire ASV in software form. Sometimes, still, that isn't as good as having it in handheld form, but at any rate, it's not all that easy to find the ASV in printed form anymore. In fact, in light of all of that, that perhaps brings us to some of the statements at the bottom. Last week, and in fact, even the week before that, I had noted that there were no perfect translations. And I still hold to that thought, as I'm sure most anyone would. Even the ASV one wouldn't call perfect. Even though it still might be hailed as the greatest and finest English translation as far as literal accuracy, here are just two thoughts you might keep in mind. For instance, in John eight fifty eight, the ASV inserts the word born. When our Lord made the statement that before Abraham was, I am, the ASV renders it, before Abraham was born, I am. And there is no word born in the Greek text. Perhaps also in Colossians 1, 16, they've changed a preposition in the ASV. It's the little word in that's presented, but we might notice again one could easily affirm that though the ASV is a very good translation and one that one would feel comfortable in using, one wouldn't go so far as to say that it's absolutely flawless and perfect. As we might thus regard the ASV as a good translation and one that we would highly recommend for ourselves and others, that does bring us to the bottom slide on this page which will take us to the next one. At this point, let's give a more thorough consideration to the King James translation. It's one I know that's very familiar to many of us, perhaps all of us, and one that has in fact been frequently one used, I suppose, in this part of the country for many, many years certainly. There is a particular element though that I need to discuss, I think, before we at least discuss the King James Version in a bit more detail. It has to do with what might be unfamiliar to some, but it is that which is called the Textus Receptus. In case you're unfamiliar with that, let me use just a moment of time, this slide and that alone, to at least highlight what is the basis for such a term and also why in the mind of some this is such a large consideration today you may have had conversations with individuals who make a particular claim or who make a particular stance. And though they may never never use the phrase textus receptus, at least if they're arguing a certain way, this likely is what they have in mind. So let's see what, in fact, this might be. I've started that by giving note to the fact that those translations of which we made note over the past week or so Going back to those translations in the Middle Ages and a few years before that, this certainly would be fair to say. And I've stated it like this. In those intervening years from the time that the inspired writers first wrote down those initial Bible books, we understand that scribes made particular copies, and that was the only way that copies could be made during that period of time. And as we arrive near the 1400s, 1500s along in that period we readily appreciate that by that time several well-known individuals who were rather skilled in languages had made a number of translations. Particularly, we might mention Erasmus, and Estienne, and Stephanus, and Beza, as well as a whole host of others. But it might be quickly noted that there were a number of variants as each of these individuals made their respective copies in Greek or in Latin or even in other languages, Those variances, in fact, is what will come to play a very significant role in what we're about to discuss. In 1516, the first Greek text rolled off the printing press. Now, that very first one, as it occurred in 1516, our attention should now come to 1633. You'll notice a fair amount of time elapsed between them, but that second edition of 1633 is the one on which the following statement is now based. And it is a statement that I would ask you to notice carefully. With regard to that 1633 second edition Greek text, in the preface to it, this statement is found. Therefore you have the text now received by all. And I put that in quotations, that's literally the way it was read in the preface. There came a time, when two of the words out of that, namely text and received, were somewhat amalgamated, put together in a phrase that reads textus receptus. That which is so interesting about that are the claims that some make based upon it. And here are the principal claims at least that are of interest for us. There are those individuals who will make unashamedly, the claim that that 1633 second edition Greek manuscript or translation I should call it is the only reliable Greek version of the Scriptures, period. And thus they go so far as to say that all other Greek renditions are unreliable and therefore any translation based on them is unreliable. And so in the mind of those who make this claim and who feel this way, All translations other than those based on that Greek 1633 text are not even to be considered. Now as we give thought to what comes from that, it is the King James translation that is based on it, or that in fact flows along with it. So much so that sometimes they they are called the King James only people or King James only individuals. You may have read about particular articles or statements that sometimes they make. Some years ago, at least in Jackson County, there was a particular church that felt that way. And in their publications, they would say, King James only. That's the only translation that they felt was reliable, the only one that they felt was credible in terms of being closely related to the original autographs. Thus, they would feel that any other translation, be it ASV, ESV, anything else, was thus not even to be remotely considered. As you and I give thought to the claim, we might ask, is the claim legitimate? What might be said about the Textus Receptus? Does it stand forth as they claim, or are they misled? Are they misguided? Are they, in fact, stating what really the evidence does not support? Here are just a few comments. I make the claim that their claim is not true, and I'll stand by that wholeheartedly. I think there is abundant evidence conclusively that shows that those who feel that there is a superior, unadulterated text, that is the Greek one of 1633, is an incorrect approach. Here are two comments. There are older manuscripts now available to the human family, older than those on which the 1633 one was based. And the 1633 one does not agree with those older ones. The ones that can now be stated to lead us all the way back really, nearly to the time of the apostles themselves. Given that there are disagreements in them, and that the disagreements are such that we must have further confidence in those which are not in the Textus Receptus what's the only conclusion one could reach. Not only that, those individuals who had access to passages and who thus made translations into Latin or other languages, they don't always agree even with this Textus Receptus, and yet they are far older than it. Those are just two brief comments. Those who, of course, believe in the King James only, we might well admire their honesty, and we might well admire their courage with regard to looking at it that way, but I think that they are mistaken in the firmness of that belief. The King James Version, in fact, we might come near the bottom. We might well say that Textus Receptus is a good translation. It's certainly not perfect. And those translations like the King James Version based upon it are not perfect either. Might we, in fact, use that to discuss more thoroughly the King James Version of the Bible? We've at least stated the King James only position. Let's look at it in the following presentation, and with some of the following highlights. There are some things that we should fairly state about the King James translation. As we make these statements, our goal is to embed in our thinking the characteristics that would help us in our study of that translation, and there are some things that you and I should very quickly note. First of all, based on the language of 1611, the English language has changed considerably since then. There are some words that they thus used correctly for that day that in our day no longer mean what they meant then. Thus, as we read the text of the King James, for example, we must ever be on guard. Does the word that you and I perhaps make use of today, did it mean the same then? If not, then God was saying something different in that word and in that passage than you and I might well be tempted to read into it today. Here are some examples. Sometimes you notice some archaic words like these. The word what? W-O-T. I feel safe in saying there's isn't an English teacher in all of Putnam or Jackson County that would feel comfortable with a student using what in an English paper. Well, why? Because that's now an archaic ancient word. In that day, it was often used. In fact, you and I can see it in Shakespeare. Sometimes in the poetry that our students are asked to read, that word what will be used. It meant to know. But yet the King James will in fact employ it. In Romans eleven two, for example, was one placement where the inspired apostle Paul used, and as it was translated, our translators in the King James used the word what, W-O-T. Another example is the word instant. We today do employ that word, but... It didn't mean the same when they used the word instant as you and I use it. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, when Paul said, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. You and I think about the word instant identifying something that happens for a very brief interval of time. It happens momentarily. Was Paul saying to Timothy, You preach fast. You preach for very short intervals of time. Well, of course that wasn't what he was saying. The word instant means to be urgent, to stand ready. As you and I thus read the King James translation, we must be aware of that or to in fact sit at the feet of a teacher who would teach properly based on the understanding and meanings of what those words convey. Another example is the word concupiscence. That one too is not used all that often today, but yet one finds it rather often in the King James Version one passage is in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 5. The word actually means eager desire, lust, or passion. Another example is wist, W-I-S-T. That also means to know, in fact, what and wist, in fact, were closely related as various tenses of the same verb in that old English language. The word prevent, as the King James uses it, you and I know prevent normally means to stop something from happening. But however, back in that day, it meant to precede. If one thing preceded another, it was said to prevent it. Paul used that very word, didn't he, in First Thessalonians 4, when he talked about that grand day when the Lord will return. And those which are alive will in no way prevent. He meant precede those which are dead. The dead in Christ shall rise first, Paul taught. Perhaps one more, the word suffer. You and I recognize that word often means to be pained or to have a great disfavor in terms of experience, to undergo hardship. However, remember that word in Greek that was translated suffer, which was appropriate for that day, really means to permit. You allow something to happen. One place that occurs, you'll notice in that listing that I've given for you there, is found in Exodus 22.18. When on that Old Testament occasion it was there said that thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, well, that meant you don't allow it or permit the witch to live. We've made then the following statement. When you and I read the King James translation, though you and I might greatly enjoy the poetic cadence of it, we should be aware that English has changed in the past 400 years. Words don't always mean the same now that they meant then. And so as we read it, we often might find it useful to have a Bible dictionary at hand so that we can make certain to understand that which God is teaching us by virtue of that word. Not only might we say that, there might be another statement worthy of our consideration. When we come to a translation, again, that's 400 years old, sometimes word meanings have changed to the point that confusion could actually occur. Likely with a word like what or whist, there might be very little chance for ultimate confusion because no other word today sounds like whist. But that isn't always true with some other words the King James translation uses. Let's give some thought to these. Might I ask you to think with me a moment about the true teaching of the notion of Hades and hell. We know that the Bible helps us appreciate there is a clear line of demarcation and a well-drawn distinction between Hades and hell. They are not the same place. In fact, hell is Gehenna. It is this eternal abode of brimstone and fire, the final abode of the wicked. But Hades isn't that. Hades is a place that, quite frankly, is not permanent. It's a place to which spirits go at the time of death, We understand the Lord made reference to it in Luke 16, didn't He? And in fact, that's where the Spirit of the Savior went, according to what Peter taught in Acts 2 verse 31. But Hades isn't permanent. Revelation 20 even teaches us that the time will come that Hades will be emptied. The spirits will in fact depart. There will be the grand resurrection, if you please. And once Hades is emptied, it will be cast into the lake of fire itself. But that draws the following point. When we read in the King James translation, the word Hades does not appear anywhere in either Old or New Testament, not a single time. But the word hell appears often. And And that brings us to the following point. In old, in old English, the word hell meant to cover. There was a verb in Old 16th century English that meant to cover. And so oftentimes roofers were called hellers. H-E-L-L-E-R-S. Those that labored in such a way to cover something were said to hail that particular matter as they covered it or concealed it. We can thus imagine that it might not have been that inappropriate to refer to Hades since it is the realm of disembodied spirits. It is the realm of the departed that not available or visible to us now. It was in sense covered and maybe one could imagine them using the word hell to describe such. But you'll notice they translated Gehenna exactly the same way. So the word hell in the King James translation sometimes is referring to Hades and sometimes it's referring to Gehenna hell fire. That means when you and I study the King James translation, if that's the only one we use we must be very cautious to make certain the distinction as to which one the inspired writer is referencing. I've tried to give you some appreciation for that, inasmuch as again, that particular cloudiness to that language in that day has really brought a sense of confusion to those that would be interested in reading only that translation today. There is again a clear difference between Hades on the one hand and hell on the other. As you give some thought to that particular statement. There are times, quite frankly, when you and I have often noted in Bible study that a particular rendering in the King James translation was such that the translators didn't do us the best of favors. Some term might have been better rendered with another one. We've tried to be very frank about that and very open and honest about that occurrence in Bible study, on both Sunday morning as well as Wednesday evening. But here, for instance, is one particular notorious example. And if you've ever had discussion with individuals who tend to be of a faith-only belief or a faith-only viewpoint, they often will turn to John 3, verse 36. You'll notice in that particular passage that Jesus, as He made a statement on that occasion, it reads as follows, closing verse to John chapter 3. In the King James Version, it reads as follows, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. We're aware that there, in that translation, the word believeth occupies a very pivotal role. Jesus expressly said apparently that he that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And so some will say, there it is, All I have to do is believe in some way or another, and there I have it. Everlasting life is thus promised to me. They often, in fact, will use the second part of the verse to amplify their thought, because then it says, "...he that believeth not the Son shall not see life." So those who are in line of considering so will look at the logic from both perspectives and say, "...belief is on that occasion what the Lord demanded." And it is on that occasion that He thus set it forth for each and every one to consider. The only problem is that the word believeth as it appears in the second usage would have been far better rendered had it been rendered obeyeth. In fact, the American Standard renders it that way. The New American Standard, the English Revised Version, all of them. And in fact, that Greek verb doesn't just mean to give mental assent to. It literally literally means to obey. Thus Jesus, in effect, said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that obeyeth not the Son shall not see life. And that alone would greatly... Aid you or me as we think about discussion with someone of that. If we could help them see that the Greek word doesn't mean exactly what they think it means, there is even in that verse the necessity of action, obedience, if you please, to that which the God of Heaven has presented. That one example might, in fact, take us to another in John three, verse number, or rather, third John, verse number six one-chapter book near the close of the New Testament, it is on that occasion that we find the King James translation reads as follows. Again, verse number 6 of that single one-chapter book. "...which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well." And the implication is you will do a good job if you send these missionaries on their way and do so with appreciation of the nature of their efforts. To read it like that sounds as if it's a commendation to us when in fact the actual Greek word doesn't have that idea behind it at all. In fact, do worthily of God is the far better rendering and so one might well note this is the way it reads... "...which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sword, thou shalt do worthily of God." And thus there is an impetus or a motivation to the degree of our labors, noting that what we're doing is not for self, of course, but rather it is an accompaniment to the great work of the mission of evangelism as set forth in the work of God Himself." Two examples, but one could well perhaps note others. The King James translation, as you'll notice in the next point, also includes some verses which appear to be copies of verses out of other of other books. I've listed a few examples for you to consider. In Luke 19, verse 10, for example, in Jesus' famous discussion with Zacchaeus, it was on that occasion, in verse number 10, that Jesus made this particular statement. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And you and I have so often wrung that message and had it reverberate in our mind and have thought about the lovely mission of the Savior, that He came to seek and to save that which was lost. The issue is, if we turn over to Matthew 18 verse 11, we will find an almost verbatim presentation of the same. And it would strongly appear that a copyist inserted it. That in fact, Matthew's rendition, if you'll read in another translation like the American Standard, that verse will not be there. In fact, the hint is that it was copied in from another location. The original Greek manuscript of Matthew didn't have it. And that same kind of thing happens in Luke 23, 17 as it compares to Matthew 27, 15. It happens also in Luke twenty two thirty seven in comparison to Matthew and Mark fifteen twenty eight, and even other examples might be listed. Now we might do quick to say, does that do injustice to or insert that which is doctrinally incorrect? In most instances no, but however it might be noted that those insertions have in fact been made. In light of all of that, I think it fair to say we can at least make the following statement. This translation of the Bible has led countless individuals toward the golden streets of glory. And maybe you and I have grown up listening to it preached from. Maybe we've often given attention to it. I know that speaking for myself, it was the translation from an early age that I knew the most about. There really, at that time, weren't nearly as easy access to some of the others. And it's the one that I chose to commit to memory. It's the one from which I learned so much. I, in fact, appreciate very much its poetic character and the cadence of its verses. I find it easier for me to memorize from it. However, it is not the best translation. It is not the only translation, as the King James' only individuals might claim. There are others that stand perfectly good and right, and others that stand very nobly in the sense they will lead one to heaven. As you give thought to this King James translation... As long as we're aware of some of these matters concerning it, having perhaps a dictionary at hand, or at least the thought that word meanings might change, I think we can rest assured that it does serve a useful purpose. Maybe as we give thought to it, as you think about what translations we haven't yet discussed, we haven't said anything about the New King James translation, nor in fact the English Standard Version. It is those which I think we'll use and also summarize some of the thoughts about the entirety of our series and perhaps the, the lesson that will come next. It might be wise at this point to at least make a statement. That is a summary statement about some of the things that you and I have seen this evening. I realize that matter of the textus receptus might have been a new phrase. But I hope that you can at least see the placement that it holds in the mind of some as they think about this in their mind, which is an only Greek reliable translation. Unfortunately, they're misguided in that. And as you and I think about, say, the American Standard Translation of 1901, though that might be difficult to find, if you have opportunity to purchase one, I would recommend it. If you have opportunity to find one, either at a yard sale or maybe even to find one online, it's probably worth the purchase price. It really is a very good translation. And as you study the King James, perhaps from time to time, being aware of some of those matters concerning it, we still can realize that properly studied, it too can help lead us on the way that would be a way that would be pleasing unto our Heavenly Father. Tonight, in light of some of these things, we may revisit some of the features about Those other translations like the NASB. In fact, one of those statements I think is worthy of consideration as we come to review on our next occasion. But for tonight, where do you stand with regard to your relationship to God? Is your standing one with which you're comfortable? In light of the revelation of Scripture and what God has said, are you right in his sight? At this point, as you examine yourselves, are you in the faith? The question does come to each of us, and it's an exceedingly personal one. For Romans 14:12 reminds us, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Will that reckoning be a pleasing one, a pleasant one, or will there be problems and occasions of great regret? I'm reminded of Belshazzar in Daniel, the fifth chapter, when it was of him said there it weighed in the balances and found wanting. Verse 23 of that chapter May each of us in urgency and in wisdom weigh ourselves in a sense now in the balance of consideration. And if we're wanting, don't delay. Why not come to the blessed Savior tonight? As you do that, He stands in open arms welcoming you, ready to convince you of all sins if you will simply repent of them and confess them properly. And upon your baptism, He'll forgive them completely. If you have been a member of the fold of God but have been unfaithful, Come back to that first love. Appreciate that Christ still waits for you. He still shed His blood for you. He may be disappointed in you now, but He will clean that slate, make you as pure and clean. That teaching of Isaiah 118 reminds us of the blessing and the privilege that can again be yours. If tonight we could pray on your behalf, assisting you in your rededication to the Master, why not let us do that? If any of these things might be the need in your life, Brother Harold's going to lead us in the song that's been chosen. And if we could be of assistance, why not come forward even now while together we stand and while we sing.